Welcome to I Should Be Meditating with Alan Klima. Settle in. Relax. Okay, so welcome to this discussion of Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now and we're right at the beginning section and looking at sticky issues, different problems that come up that arise as we're encountering these. And that includes uh, two kinds of thoughts. One usually is a thought of translation, uh, not really knowing what the concepts and vocabulary means exactly, or thinking we know what it means, and then uh, having an objection and uh, you know having trouble with what we're hearing when really we probably actually agree with him. Uh, and then the other is the one where where we think it should be really should be expressed differently or where it's pointing doesn't seem quite right to us uh, and uh, and everything in between as well and let's get right into it here's a quote from page 37 in the absence of psychological time your sense of self is derived from being therefore the psychological need to become anything other than who you already are is no longer there. And uh, someone writes the question, Since your past shapes who you are, how can you separate that from simply being? So this is uh, one of those questions that's kind of founded on an assumption. And uh, it's interesting to look at that assumption. And we could also say that this uh, quote from Eckhart Tolle is quite accelerated. Uh, it's jumping over, leaping over something uh, that uh, we might want to actually take a look at first. So let's look in this question, actually. Since your past shapes who you are, and the part that we need to kind of focus on is the who you are part. And the since, since your past shapes who you are. And it's just really the assumption there is that who you are is the sum total of all the conditioning, all the choices that you've made, all the choices that have been made for you, all the things that happened to you, and all the things that you did all the events of your life, the conditioning, the cultural values and education that you received, and all the things that happened in the past, that those things combine together uh, with your biological body and everything, and the whole sum total is who you are. So, if that's the case, then it would be natural to want to question, you know, how can we separate everything that makes up who we are, from who we are, from simply being, uh, let's say, simply being in the present. How can we separate that out as something different from all those other things that we know is who we are? So that's really it. Is it, is it so? Is that who we are? Are we only the sum total of all the 
conditioning and all the influences that we've had, is that who we are? What if it isn't? What if that isn't fundamentally who we are? Is there anything that's here? Is there anything that's here that's been consistent over all these years? Through all the different events that's happened, the things that we believe, the things that we've thought, is there anything present? Maybe a kind of a witnessing? Has there, any, has there been anybody along for the ride this whole time? And looking into that, maybe this sense of presence is, you know, something else. Something else than all the conditioning, all the different things that appear and disappear in front of us. Because we've been a certain kind of person when we were five and when we were ten. And after that, when we're fifteen and beyond. Each time, we're different. That's all changing. But is there something that we fundamentally are that hasn't been changing? And when we come into a sense of really just simply being, as the questioner asks, really where is all that? Where is the five-year-old, the 15-year-old, all the conditioning? Is that really here? Or does something else come forward, step forward? Something else that's more primary, more basic. And isn't it the case that you have to actually reach out to those memories and reach out to those events, those shaping events that tell you who you are? Or reach out to your identity Don't you have to actually do some work to build up a sense of who you are that's more connected to all those events that happened before? But if you don't do that work, if you withdraw the attention back, isn't it the case that that stuff isn't really there? You would have to actually remember that you're a man, or a woman, or something else. When you're going to the bathroom in a public restroom, you know, you see the two choices. And then you think about what you are. Or when someone looks at you in a social situation in a certain way, a lot of times, whether you're a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, or something, that's going to, you know, it's going to call up into your mind. It's going to be triggered and you'll, you'll recognize that. But a lot of the time, where is that? Do you really feel like you're a man all the time? Or taking this example of the simply being, isn't it the case that when we're really coming into that, all that other stuff is gone? 
It's not really there in the simply being. And you don't really need to do anything to separate that from simply being. So the questioner has the assumption, you know, on the one hand that your past shapes who you are. So you are all that stuff that's shaped by the past. But there's also then the, the further assumption that we need to do something to separate out that stuff from simply being. When it's really the other way around. We have to actually do some work to call that up. To call all that up from simply being. Simply being doesn't have, you know, any of those thoughts. And it needs to actually reach out and connect up with all that other stuff. So the work may seem under this assumption to be a work of separation, but it's not really, it's, it's really a work of, of non-connecting, non-working to connect all that stuff up. So naturally, the question comes up that, well, in practice, I don't really, you know, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Sometimes it feels like all that stuff is already connected up and, and going. So how do I turn that off? How do I get out of that? And there's lots of approaches. There's meditation. There's training. Practice, try again, try again, over and over, and that's all good. And then there's also something else that kind of comes to the rescue here that's really helping us here, which is just gaining clarity on what's actually the case. So it might not be the case all the time when all that stuff is assaulting and you're really connected up with all, or it seems like you're really connected up with all that stuff and that whole sense of who you are. Sometimes at that moment, it might not really be that possible to kind of get clear. But other times it is possible. So at those times, when it's possible to get clear, get clear. When it's possible to really see how it's actually a work, it's an effort that arises in the mind, in the being, to connect up with all that other stuff. You know, see it. See it that that's how it really is. Or if you don't see it that way yet, look and see whether it's that way or not. Now, not all the time will you be able to do that, maybe. So, in a moment of peace, in a moment of quiet, in a moment of really kind of understanding the third term in that question, which was simply being, in that moment, just really get clear about this sense of simply being. And then notice how the mind starts to connect up with those other things, and there's an effort, there's an energy 
it doesn't work. So, so really see that. Really check that out in those moments. And this will come to the aid. It's not really separating. It's getting clear about what's actually happening. Meanwhile, we could also say that sometimes in hard moments, that clarity also comes. And we know that from uh, the beginning of Eckhart Tolle's text, that right away, you know, it, it starts off actually in a very, very bad situation and discusses how that clarity came in that moment. So it doesn't have to be a moment of ease, of peace. But we can investigate in these moments of ease and peace, and we can use meditation to, you know, bring those moments on where we can get clear, where we can look clearly. Other times, this special power of getting clear about what's really going on, this will come in a hard time. And then in the meantime, we can also play the game of meditation, of wholesome living, of wholesome thinking. And we can, you know, work on deconditioning all this conditioned connection. But just know right now that that, that work will never be finished. It's just a relative game. It's a relative play. The real thing is getting clear. But if we're, you know, under the assault of a lot of connection to disturbing ideas about who and what we are and what's shaped us and so forth, then we might, you know, also want to go heavily in the root of, of, of deconditioning, of meditation, training, wholesome living, therapy, all these things uh, to help, uh, you know, ease out the energy of connection to all those things. So in all these ways, it's all good. Let's uh, read that quote again and see if it sounds different now. In the absence of psychological time, your sense of self is derived from being. In the absence of psychological time, your sense of self is derived from being, not from your personal past. Therefore, the psychological need to become anything other than who you already are is no longer there. Check that out. See if that's so. You can actually do that. Very great. Let's take another question now. Forget about your life situation for a while and pay attention to your life. That comes from page 62. I'm curious as to how to balance this. One can't ignore your life situation even if you can instead pay attention to your life. So we know this, uh, we know this is going to come up, you know, quite strongly in a book called The Power of Now, which is going to be about 
you know, not connecting up with projections, plans, worries about the future and the past. About not putting our energetic investment into those things. And naturally, we're going to ask, well, don't we need to invest in those things? To live a life and negotiate a situation, how can we just leave all that behind? Leave that all out. So that's, you know, maybe the question that's going to come up the most in relation to this at first. But what I want to point out about the question is that this question itself, the overwhelming balance of its meaning and where it's being spoken from, is from the side of life situation. So in this quote, Tolle is making a distinction between life and life situation, which is just using language to create a, a different sense a point to do different things to make some distinction and to give us a, a way to, you know, discriminate, to look and differentiate because there's something skillful about that. So life situation means everything that we've been talking about, about who and what you think you are and your past and your conditioning and where your future is going, your story. You know, when I was five years old, I played on the block with Mary Sue. She trampled my flowers. She was weird. When I was 12, I went to a new school. I didn't have any friends. It was really awkward. When I went to college, I started having friends again and a good time, and so on. And in the future, I'm going to become a masseuse. So here we have our, you know, our whole story, and that's our life situation. And right now, I'm having trouble with the electricity bills, and uh, I've got to find an apartment next year. So that's all stuff that we need to think about, you know, the writers saying. And it can't just be in our life. And life would mean, you know, simply being in that sense of presence, free of all that thought, just how things really are. And as soon as somebody, you know, starts to tap into that, the question could be coming just from an intellectual distinction, but I think probably the author has sort of started to feel a sense of simple presence and notice the absence of all those different thoughts and projections and things like that. And that can be a little disturbing, a little scary, just like, you know, how am I, this is nice, but I got a life situation to negotiate. So we understand this question, we understand this problem. And it's easy to understand because it comes from the habitual way of thinking that we're always thinking. It comes from the life situation question. It's about how to live my life. And the question is, 
you know, if uh, what is the amount of balance? How much should I emphasis should I put on this, you know, thing referred to as life? And how much should I put on life situation? Which is a question thinking about life situation and how to work it out and how to live. And what would the role of this sense of presence, of being in the now, what role would that play in my life situation? Would it improve my life situation? What would be too much? That's uh, especially what it's asking is, what would be too much of this? So, you know, one answer to this question is, take a break. Take a break. Take a break from trying to figure out how to live life. So when you're when you're feeling present, the urge, the mind will come up and try to want to interpret it. Well, this feels good. How much? What if I? And it starts asking questions and tries to place it in the life situation, which takes you out of it. Instead, put a little emphasis into life itself. Something is calling you there. You wouldn't be listening to this. You wouldn't be interested in this. You wouldn't have even asked that question, actually, also. It's also coming from the other side. It's coming from a taste, a sense of the feeling of presence, the intuition of presence. Something is calling you in that way. So, check it out. And something is saying, that's risky. You know, you need to know where it's going. You need to know how it's going to help your life. But you can't really check it out, listening to that voice. So, here's what I can say about balance. And we, we are going to give something to the mind, to the life situation, to, you know, to calm it down. Here's what I can say about balance. Is that, first of all, the appearance of this thought is a real sign that there probably isn't a balance. That every time attention is turning toward presence, toward a simple presence, the mind is swinging it back in the other direction. So first, see this and recognize this as not a balance. That's, it's not a balanced question. It's heavily favored in the other direction. And secondly, is just see. Just, you know, let's, let's talk to that mind that's asking that question and just tell it, well, let's see. Let's see what it, let's see what happens. Will I really just never plan anything, never think about the future? Or do I have a lot of conditioning and habit about thinking about the future and planning and, 
And that stuff is not going to go away and I don't have to worry about it because I'm definitely going to be thinking about the future anyway. I don't need to worry about that going away. Maybe it's a little too much. Well, let's see. Let's look into it. There's only one way to really find out. Is to really, you know, let some of that into your life. And now I am also speaking in the life situation thing, how to live or whatever. But we have to maybe, maybe not have to, but let's do that now. I feel to do that now. Let's, let's give the mind something to think, something to chew on. And that would be that, let's see, let's experiment. Maybe things will be better. So just uh, hold on for a second and, and let's check it out. And then from the other side, from the side of being, just know that there is no thinking about how it fits into the situation. And simply being present, that thought is nothing to do with it. It has no bearing. It's just not real. It's just a, it's just a thought about projecting into the future, etc. It has no meaning. And there's no reason if we're coming home, dwelling in our simple presence, there's no reason to think about that. And now for the mind again. Don't worry. That simple presence, it, it's that feeling of simply being present without thinking about the past or future. It's also just temporary. And uh, we'll be thinking about that stuff again. Maybe if we spend a little bit more time in that simple presence, our decision-making process might get clearer, might get easier. We might more intuitively sense what's the right thing to do, right direction to go. So there could be, you know, a real, a real payoff in the life situation side of things. So let's take that in and, and, uh, you know, maybe that will, will help with that as we go forward. Okay, so here's a question from page 55. It is not a question of guilt, but as long as you run, as long as you are run by the egoic mind, you are part of the collective insanity. So this is a part where Tolle is kind of talking about world history, stuff going on in the planet, and, you know, uh, I kind of think that the further away from kind of our direct experience and our, our direct being, He's pointing, the more shaky are his ways of expressing himself and his thoughts, the more they seem quite cultural. Uh, but, uh, you know, cultural and conditioned and, and really can be seen in another way. But uh, let's look at this question. It's not that, you know, it is talking about all the war and violence and excessive stuff going on in the world today. 
but it's not being too particular about it. So it kind of remains on the the side of, of being, you know, in a certain way, uh, being more simply true. So I don't think that there's too many people that would totally disagree with the idea that egoic mind is, you know, a big part of the collective insanity that adds up among all the humans and makes them do all kinds of crazy things. And uh, saying it's not really all about guilt is kind of meaning that it's not really even a question of trying to be a good person and only making good choices and good things. And, you know, if people make bad choices, then, then they should feel guilty or something like that. That has its place, but that's not what he's pointing to here. He's actually saying something, you know, very radical which is that, uh, you know, the whole thing is actually just run on egoic mind. And if you are, you know, run by egoic mind, then you're part of it. So it is a kind of a radical and disturbing thing, potentially disturbing thing. And uh, he's saying it's not really... Uh, guilt by association, exactly. It has really nothing to do with guilt. It's just you you actually just are part of it. And here's the question. So is the author disassociating himself from the human race by not letting himself be run by the egoic mind? He referred to humans and their quote-unquote sins, which he, he didn't really like the use of that word. He referred to humans as a collective, as if he isn't part of the group. So isn't that what makes us human, to, to be run by the egoic mind and participate in the collective insanity? And uh, we could say, you know, either way. Obviously it's there, it's happening. So that is, you know, what humans do. But, uh, you know, there's a whole other side to humans also. There's so much goodness, so much love and compassion in the world, so much sanity. I mean, just driving down the freeway like I have to do in California. All these cars in this tight formation you know, why isn't everyone just like crashing into each other? Or these, there's like 2,000 people in a shopping mall and like 50 employees and 10 security guards. Why isn't everyone just like grabbing everything and stealing everything? Why isn't this whole world just like completely falling apart? I mean, people keep saying that it is, it is, but, and we know that they're trying to be helpful, trying to point out dangers and, and things that are going wrong, and I'm not denying that those things are there, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that's holding this whole thing together. Where is that coming from? It's not coming from egoic mind. 
it's coming from something else in us. In all of us. So if someone was, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that if someone was to come out of egoic mind and be in that other side, that other aspect of things that's holding this whole thing together, that would not remove them from being human. And so it's coming down to a question of who and what are we really again? Are we really all that insanity and all that egoic mind? Or are we fundamentally what's holding this all together? The love and compassion and deep peace that's holding all that insanity together. So, I'm not sure if he's removing himself from the humans. But his way of talking, yeah, it, it made the humans sound like they're all only egoic minds. An unfortunate way of expressing himself. But now let's, let's look at this the other way. There is something, though. Obviously, there's something different. If, for the sake of argument, we were saying that somebody was able to come out of egoic mind, then yes, it, it would feel like a kind of a, a removal. And I know some people listening may already feel that. That the people around them seem to be talking about things that don't seem important, that don't feel important. They're gossiping about other people, but it's not interesting to you. You can't identify with what everybody's talking about and what they want you to talk about. It's almost like they're, they could almost be, like sometimes it's like they're cartoon characters or, or kind of flat, everything's kind of flat and you're kind of removed from everything. This is a feeling, so I'm going to kind of bring this up. And This is a feeling that, that many people listening already feel. And it's something that uh, someone who goes down a spiritual path or a meditative path will probably feel uh, a little bit at a time, gradually, and that will be nice and be totally easy, or maybe a little bit suddenly, and that could be a little hard to negotiate at first, but everyone gets through it and it'll be fine. But uh, there is a, a kind of removal. Usually the people who are interested in, in meditation and spiritual things, they're already partly removed. Somehow they're not quite in the, the same vein as the popular culture, though they might, you know, still consume the same things and, and be in the same places, but something about them is a little bit different. They feel a little bit different from the, the collective. And that continues as the practice continues, or even without practice, just very naturally, people start awakening out and finding that their friends are talking about stuff that they don't have interest in, or even close 
very close people, people that they love very much. And uh, this kind of removal, as the the questioner was talking about, there is a kind of removal, but it's it's not a removal from humanity. In fact, we use that word humanity. We use that in a different sense in English. We usually mean it to mean the the sane, the loving, compassionate part, the part that holds everything together. So there is a, a kind of removal, but it's not quite as stark as that quote talks about. And it's not uh, a disturbing removal either. It feels great to be connected with one's humanity. So good, let's look at another question. Here's a quote from page 45. When you create a problem, you create pain. All it takes is a simple choice, a simple decision. No matter what happens, I will create no more pain for myself. I will create no more problems. And then he goes on to say, you won't make the choice unless you are truly fed up with suffering, unless you've truly had enough. Okay, so when you create a problem, you create pain. All it takes is a simple choice, a simple decision. No matter what happens, I will create no more pain for myself. I will create no more problems. You won't make that choice unless you're truly fed up with suffering, unless you've truly had enough. So this quote is kind of saying that really it comes down to a simple choice, simple decision, which sounds unbelievable almost, that I'm just not going to have any more pain, I'm not going to create any more problems. So does this imply that high levels of suffering are required for realization? Because the author then says, well, as simple as that sounds, you're actually not going to make that choice unless you've really been fed up with suffering. So does that mean that I have to have a high level of suffering for realization? So... Good question. I think partly the, the answer is yes. We have to be fed up a little bit. If life is just a, a box of chocolates and each one is just so yummy and tasty, you know, we'll never really ever think about how to end suffering because we're not suffering or we're not realizing any suffering. We're not having any problem. We're making our projections for life and they're turning out just the way we want. Everything's turning out just the way we want. Or even if it doesn't turn out the way we want, it turns out better. Or in a different way, but the different ways is totally awesome too. And so we're just loving everything. Everything's good. But uh, what's more likely to be happening for and if that's the way it is, great. Why should we question that? I don't want to question that. That sounds awesome. But for a lot of us, our projections and plans for the future and what we're expecting that we deserve out of life and how we want things to be and, and everything, that tends to be really frustrating. 
and it's really trying, and then it, it's really, yeah, it's really tiring and trying. And for a while we'll say, okay, you know, that didn't work out, let me try something else. So this will work, this will, this will do it for me, then I'll be, everything will be okay. And we'll go on and on like that forever. So some amount of being fed up is necessary. And I think every human being gets a little fed up with that stuff and finds another way. And then finds the power to say, I'm not going to have problems, I'm not going to suffer. So I think we, we all have that power, and we've been exercising it from a young age. From a young age, things have not been turning out. We've been getting the wrong color lollipop, and then, you know, got on the wrong baseball team, had the wrong friends, or didn't have friends, or whatever. All kinds of things weren't turning out all right. And for a while, we let that really chew us up, and we really chewed into it. But at some point, we gradually learned the art of just saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna suffer. I'm not gonna let that happen. I'm not gonna have a problem." So, while it's true that we don't have an absolute ability to do that, just naturally going through life, we definitely have ability. We do have that. Look very closely, and you do have that. And uh, every time things get frustrating and hard and difficult, we call up that power and we enhance that power. Those of us who are living a relatively skillful life, which is the vast majority of humans, where things are, are getting better, basically... Maybe not better, but, but things are either better or, you know, okay. That okayness or that betterness is coming from our ability and our strength and our power to refuse to have problems. And where does that problem, where does that come from? Where does that power come from? It comes from us tasting the bitter, tasting the frustration, the disappointment, and just saying, no, refusing, refusing to have a problem with that. So this is a very great thing, and the power does come in part from, from suffering. But I, I do agree with the questioner that there's, who seems to have a sense that there's something more. Uh, there's also a call in us for something higher, for something better a love of, of joy and happiness and a love of the other beings and and experiences that that feel joyful and loving with the world, appreciation of beauty and all these other things. There's something noble in us and uh, that's also that's also giving us the power to transcend these projections and these thoughts about the world and life that are uh, you know, can make us suffer. So there's a there's a couple forces at work, not just the one. But probably there's no human. I'm just guessing. I don't know, but probably there's no human that can really operate with any strength and power without experiencing some frustration and suffering. 
Now, this should not be turned into a kind of philosophy or a principle that, oh, I should suffer more and more and more, and that will make me stronger. Because the suffering itself is coming from, you know, it's the opposite of what we're talking about here. The suffering is coming from an inability, uh, and it's not like a bad choice or a bad decision. It's just a, an inability to not have a problem with what's going on. So without that ability, we're, we're going to have a problem with what's going on. What's going on with us, with how we really want it to be for us, or what we're really thinking, and how we wish it would, was different, how we're not liking what's going on. And we're refusing, you know, we don't have the ability to refuse to have a problem with it. So that's the suffering. And our inability to, to opt out of it is actually what's giving us the power to opt out of it. So it's just talking about a process. And the fact that some suffering and difficulty is actually worth it in the end. And that, you know, in the temporary states where things are bad, things are not feeling good, and we are suffering, and we're not able to choose to be out of it, that we don't necessarily have to assume that that's all bad. Something good might come of it. That we may be, there may be an intelligence in us, a genius in us that's processing this, that's finding the way out. Some of this stuff just has to happen for humans. And we'll always have, we'll always have things, you know, that are painful. What he means by suffering here is not mean like, you know, you step on a nail and it hurts. Or somebody dies and it hurts. Somebody close to you dies and it hurts. Someone close to you says something that completely overturns your life. And it hurts. Those kinds of things happen in life. They are, in, uh, in one ancient analogy, they're like these arrows that life shoots into you. And that's part of, you know, what it, what uh, what's going on here in this existence. And... Uh, there's other stuff, though. There's extra. So the arrows that get shot into us, what we often do is we grasp onto the arrows and we start twisting them around and pulling at them and yanking at them and even stabbing them in again so that the one arrow becomes a second arrow and a third arrow and a fourth arrow and we keep grabbing that arrow and stabbing it into us. That aspect of things can end. And that ends when we're fed up. When we're fed up with churning things over and over in the mind. And making them into more. Make it into extra. So the extra is really what's meant by suffering here. And that extra we can get fed up with. 
that fed-upness gives us some power, but so does our natural call and attraction to freedom, to peace, to love. That's also on our side. So there's two things. And that makes it great. So there's a few discussions. Let's look a, a little bit more into further parts of the text. And in a no-holds-barred way, just bring up any little thing that comes up. Take a look at, you know, what it's turning up, what it's showing. Thank you for listening to I Should Be Meditating with Alan Klima. For more help with meditation, to connect with other meditators, and to deepen your practice, go to I should be meditating.com.